So we're going to continue our study in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we're going to be in basically mainly in chapter 10. We were going to cover two chapter or two chapters, 10, 11, and 12. So three chapters, but I think we're just going to stay in chapter 10 and I will reserve 11 and 12 with uh, next week. Um, so let me go ahead and uh, read. So if you guys would please stand as we're going to read chapter 10. Uh, we're not going to read the whole passage. We're going to start in verse 28 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. So please stand and as we listen to God's word for God's people. Nehemiah 10, 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, joined with their brothers, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and statutes." We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and exact of every debt. Verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people likewise uh, have likewise cast lots of wood offering to bring into the house of God according to our Father's house at the time appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborns of the herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the first uh, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chamber of the house of God, and to bring the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect all the tithes in our towns where we labor. And the priests and the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes and the Levites shall bring the tithes into the tithes to the house of God, to the chamber of the storehouse. Verse 39, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine and oil to the chambers where the vessel and the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gate, the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of of our God. Again, God's word for God's people. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So Lord, I would pray by your spirit that you would give us eyes to see and hear what you would have for us in this text. This text actually is a very practical text for us today, as we shall see. So Lord, again, be, let's be attentive to your word. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Guys, go have a seat. Well, again, we've been going through um, the book of Nehemiah. As you guys know, we just have a couple more weeks left in the book of Nehemiah. And over the last, the last couple weeks, starting when we started Nehemiah 10, we started 
talking and looking at God reviving through revival the people of God. Uh, in chapters 1-6, through six, we saw that that there was a rebuilding of the wall to protect the people of God. And then from 7 to the end of the book, chapter 13, we are seeing that now Nehemiah, and in particular Ezra, is now building up the people of God. They've been in exile for 70 plus years. They're coming back to repopulate the land of Jerusalem. The walls are built. The city is fortified. And now it's time to rebuild the people of God. And again, this is the, this is, we see this through revival and, and beginning, the beginnings of revival, uh, a revival again is an extraordinary work of God in saving and unifying the people of God. Uh, the beginnings of revival begins with a renewed commitment back to the Word of God, to the testimony of Scripture. And this is what we see in Nehemiah. And then also for our day, when we, we open the book of God, we open the mouth of God. And that does something, that changes us, and that compels us now to listen and to move forward. Last week, Rich highlighted the second pillar of revival, when the gospel and God's word is preached. And we saw that that conviction reigned on the people of God. Uh, They saw their sin, they saw their disobedience, and they didn't sit and wallow in that, but as Rich pointed out, they, they turned them to God for forgiveness of sin. They repented. Repentance is a great gift, not only back in Nehemiah's day, but also in our day. It's a good gift of God. When we hear God's word preached and we're convicted of sin, he gives us this gift called repentance. And then he, when we repent of our sin, he gives us even a greater gift and it's called forgiveness. The voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. You can sum up Christianity like that. And this morning, we're going to look at the third aspect of revival. It's obedience. Uh, The Word is open. God speaks to us. We're convicted of our sin. He tells us what not to do, but He also tells us what to do. And His commands lead to blessing and joy. And now we now are going to see that. What, What it looks like to walk in obedience, that whatever we do, that we do for the glory of God. We know since Genesis 3, humanity, when Adam and Eve fell, humanity was 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 fell into sin. And in, and in that, our desire as the human race was to do things and live for our own glory, to be our own kings, to be our own queens, to live for ourselves the way we wanted to live. We, we disobeyed and rejected God. But then Jesus came and he turned that around. Today we see what it looks like to be a part of a true revival. And it's for the people of God to be recommitted to the gospel of God through the word of God, by the power of God. That we show that commitment as we obey the commandments and the covenant of God. And when we do that, we are going to be blessed, the scripture says. And we're going to live a happy and joyful life. Even in the midst of some trials and some difficulties and some suffering, even those will be turned for our good. And this is the truth that has been with us from Abraham to Jesus and now to us. From Abraham, Genesis 22:18 says this, Your offspring will be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Jesus says it this way in Luke eleven twenty eight: Blessed, oh how happy, oh how joyful are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And that's our desire here. Our desire is to hear the word of God and to walk in obedience and to keep it. And so we're going to see two ways in which that happens. First, we see this recommitment to be a unified people in Nehemiah, but then also with us. This recommitment to be a unified people. It's really in Nehemiah 10, 1 through 29. Now, as we recall, 
Again, the, the, when we began the book of Nehemiah, uh, the people of God were not united, were they? Uh, in fact, they were spread out. They were discouraged. They were desperate uh, because they were a disorganized people. Nothing rallied around them. The walls were, were down. They had desolate. They were, uh, uh, they were not ready. They could be attacked from any angle. They were not secure. They were discouraged. They were desperate because they were disorganized. And then Nehemiah shows up. Nehemiah hears, he asks the right question to his brother. Hey, how are the people in Jerusalem doing? Because he was in Susa, thousands of miles away. And his brother said, man, they're not good. So the Lord put a mission on Nehemiah's heart to come and serve the people. And that mission was first to rebuild the walls. But first he had to go through his king, Artaxerxes. And so he told him that the Artaxerxes, the, his passion, his burden for his people. And Artaxerxes let Nehemiah go. And Nehemiah shows up at the doorstep of the broken walls of Jerusalem. And, and he first surveys the land, and then he goes to the people. He calls the people together, and he tells them that the hand of the Lord is on him. That God has put a mission on his heart to rebuild this city, to rebuild these walls, and to rebuild the people of God. And that rallied the people. They heard the story of how Artaxerxes is really paying for this endeavor how Artaxerxes blessed Nehemiah to come do this in Nehemiah 2.18, the people said, let us then rise up and build together. They were unified around this mission of God that was laid on Nehemiah's heart. Now, all wasn't perfect then. They started to build, and then we saw in Nehemiah chapter 5, what? We started some trouble started to happen. Uh, we saw some in-house fighting, which Nehemiah dealt with. But then we come to chapter 8, and we read this incredible statement. In Nehemiah 8.1 it says, And all the people, all the people gathered as one man. They, they started out desperate. They started out disunified. They started out disorganized and discouraged. And in chapter 8 it says about 50,000 people, men, women, and children, rallied around Nehemiah and Ezra and the Word of God. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 of Nehemiah 10 says this, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, joined with their brothers, the nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, His rules and His statutes. What was the unifying factor? It was God's Word and God's covenant. Is that they recognized that they were the people of God and they had to be renewed to the covenant of God that their forefathers got from Moses years ago. That's what unified them. So they went from, again, a discouraged and desperate people to now a unified people. And this unified, uh, they're unified as individuals and as a community to recommit to obey the covenant given to Moses with their, their seals and their signatures. If you look back at, at, at chapter 9, that last sentence there, the last sentence that, that Rich read last week was that they all came together, they heard, they were convicted by their sin, they, they received their forgiveness, and then they signed this new covenant. This, wasn't a, uh, this new covenant wasn't new, it was the old covenant that Moses wrote, and they all said, we will recommit 
to keeping this, and they did it by signing it with their family seals. Verse 38, because of all this, we will make a firm covenant in writing. Just again, a a recommitment to the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. On the sealed documents are the names of the princes, the Levites, and our priests. So they signed them. And then verses, chapter 10, verses 1 through 27 are all the, the heads of the families that signed it. So this list is not an exhaustive list, but it's a representative list of all the people saying that we will recommit, we will be unified again under the banner of the Lord and His old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant. This is what unified them. This list, and they all, we see this list of all these people in chapter 10. And then we'll see them again next week in 11 and 12. Now, when we come to these lists as, you know, New Testament Christians living in the year 2022, we're like, who, who wants to read the list? Who cares about this list? Well, these lists are important. Uh, these lists, these genealogies that we read, they're important. One, because they're in the Bible, Right? I mean, nothing in the, if it's in the Bible, it's important. The Holy Spirit, God wanted that to be in the Bible. So it's important because these lists of names are in the Bible. Two, most of these lists, most of these genealogies are tracking the lineage of Jesus. They're taking us from Abraham to the Messiah, Jesus, and showing us that he was the, the Messiah to come out of the tribe of Judah. But three, it's important because these are real people. These are real people like you and me. These are real people that had real families, real spouses. They had real jobs. They had real struggles. Uh, that, that walked in a Genesis 3 world just like you. And that God cares for them. He cares for them back then. He cares for you today. And not only does He care for us, but He uses them. He uses them to minister to us today. And He uses us to minister to those around us today. So lists and genealogies are important. And this list... This list reveals who was all in to following God and renewing His covenant. All in at this time. You see over and over again in chapter 10 this phrase, we will, we will, we will. These people committed to again coming together as a community individually to say that we will follow the commands of God and walk in obedience. This is what unites us. Now we don't find our names anywhere in the Bible, right? And we get that, obviously. But our names are in the Bible. In fact, our names are written in another book that the Bible talks about. And it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. We read about it in Revelation 13 and Revelation 20. And let me tell you, this is good news. This is great news. And this is news that we, you and I, should rejoice in. I bet you we all woke up this morning and we didn't think like that. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Anyone had that thought this morning? I didn't have that thought till this week either. And now I've been thinking about it every single day and hopefully you will too because this is a stunning reality. This is a stunning statement. That your name, if you are in Christ, that my name, those of us who are repented of Christ and trusted Him as our Lord and Savior, that our names were written by God Himself in the book of life. And right now, He can open up and be like, hey, let's, let's read the book of life today. And He's going to see Aaron Santina and re- Santina, I don't even know my own name. Aaron Santina, Rita Santini. You know, He's going to go through this. It's great news. It's news to rejoice. And this is what Jesus said. He sent out the disciples with this new authority and power. And they come back to Jesus like, man, we're teaching with authority. We're healing spirits. Guess what's happening? And Jesus says this. 
In Luke 10, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. That's what we rejoice in. Again, think about that right now. Your name has been written by God Himself in the Lamb's Book of Life if you are in Christ. Just think about this right now. Your name, my name, throughout our lives appear in many lists. What's the greatest list that your name is on right now? Think about that. What is it? Is it maybe graduation? You know, you pass out that program, you got 500 names in there, and as soon as you, your parents go there, they see 500 people, say thousands of people, they get that program, they're just looking for one name, right? They're looking for your name to make sure you really did graduate, right? You know, they're like, give me that list. Or is it maybe you got a sports award, or maybe you got an award for school, or maybe you got employee of the year, or maybe you even wrote a book and your name is written in a book. For me, probably the greatest list of my name was on was back in 1993 when I was drafted by the Major League Baseball, by the Minnesota Twins. My name got called and listed. That was a great day. That's a cool moment for me. But you know what? It pales. It pales in comparison that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Nothing, nothing is that important. In fact, there's going to be one day, because my name is in there, that on the last day of the day of judgment, Matthew 25, 24 says this, that Jesus will come. And this is what I'm going to hear. He's going to say, come you. And if you're in Christ, I want you to put your name in there. Come Aaron Santini, who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That is a stunning reality that one day is already but not yet. One day I will... I will Hear Jesus' words. You will hear Jesus' words on that day of judgment. And you want to make sure He's reading your name from the book of life. Amen? So that's the question. Is your name in that book? Are you? Can you rejoice this morning that your name is in the book of life? If it is, rejoice. And I saw we, 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 we actually learned a couple weeks ago when we were in practice when we talked about worship and we're talking about giving amens and hallelujahs. Good, good. If your name is in there, you be, should be saying hallelujah, amen. There you go. But if it's not, today is the day it can be written in there. Today is the day that you can make sure that when Jesus stands before you, when you stand before Jesus in the last day, He's going to read your name from the book of life and He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of my Master, your Master. Do you know how you get there? You get there by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. Repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. You trust in Christ's life. You trust in His death and His resurrection for you. And when you do that, you'll be saved. It's not about working. It's not about earning. It's about merit. It's about faith in Christ and what He has done for you. And when you do that, your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. So do that this morning before you leave. That is priority number one if you don't know Jesus. And this is what unites us this morning. That we are here because we have been saved by Jesus. And we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Here's what's cool. Not only is our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life because by faith we exceed the Gospel, but Ephesians 1 tells us that we are sealed. And it's not our signature that seals us, it's the Holy Spirit Himself that seals us. And that protects us. Therefore, our names can never be erased from that book. Those He called, He glorified. You see, we are united by this. We are one body with one Savior, with one Lord, 
with one hope, with one faith. So we see that this morning, just as the people of Nehemiah did, they recommitted to the old covenant, we recommit to the new covenant, to under the banner of Christ. Second, we recommit to be an obedient people. Again, obedient people. Here we see Nehemiah 10, verses 30 through 39. And this is where we're going to spend the most of our time here. We're going to see this broken out in three aspects. You see, God always has a people that He's leading. He always has a people to reveal His glory to, salvation through the Gospel. And then He always has a people that He's revealing His glory through, as ambassadors to the world. Those ambassadors to the world are those of us who walk in obedience to His Word. And the Lord uses us, He uses our lives, and as we follow Him to set us apart, to show that the distinctions and the characteristics of what it means to be a Christian is distinct from the world at some levels and in some ways. And so we might say it like this, we are not only saved from something, sin, death, and hell, but we are saved to someone, Jesus, and we're, to, and we're saved to do something. And that is to love God and make disciples. This is why God has called us. This is what He has set us apart from. And in Nehemiah, verses 30 through 39, He tells us what it looks like to walk in obedience, what it looks like to follow His Word in three ways. There's multiple ways, but He picks out three. Marriage, the Sabbath, and with ties. Now before we get into this obedience, I want to make sure that we're very clear on what it means to walk in obedience. When we talk about obedience and walking obedience, we're not talking about earning your salvation. We are already saved. We're already on the team. We're talking about working out our salvation. And that's a huge distinction. Again, to walk in obedience is to work out our salvation, not work for our salvation. Again, in this context, these people are already the people of God, just like we are already the people of God. And therefore, these things, these commands to uh, renew and recommit are, we're called to walk in our identity, who we already are in Christ. And as a Christian, this is what we naturally do. So this is an, an overflow. Again, we're not working for our salvation, we're working out of our salvation. The, we walk in obedience to, to honor, to worship to thank the Lord for what He has done for us. So that's a massive distinction we need to keep in mind. Again, Nehemiah highlights marriage, the Sabbath, and ties. Today's language is very practical for us. We might say it this way. He highlights marriage, rest, and giving. So first, let's look at marriage. Nehemiah 10, verse 30. He says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So it, it seems that the, the Jewish people were, were taking foreign spouses. Foreign spouses. People who had a different worldview. People who had a different faith than them. They were marrying. And this is what's counter to God's Word. This disobeys God's Word. God's Word says that we marry those who have the same worldview, who have the same faith as us. So again, these Jews were marrying Gentiles. Uh, they were marrying Babylonians and Persians. Again, people with a different worldview, a different faith than the Jewish peoples. This is what we see throughout Scripture, many of Israel's downfalls, especially in individuals. You think of people like Samson. Samson's main downfall is he had a, a passion for women, but he had a passion for the wrong woman. He had a passion for the Philistine woman. He married a Philistine woman. Delilah was a Philistine Solomon. Now Solomon had a lot of issues because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So he had a lot of issues, 
But again, he married those women from outside of the faith. And quickly, I want to point this out. Because some people use this to say that inter-ethnic relationships are against the Bible, and that is anything further from the truth. What Nehemiah is saying, what the Bible is saying, he's not saying that Jewish people can't marry Gentiles. He's not saying that a Jewish person can't marry a Babylonian or a Persian. This has nothing to do with ethnicity. has everything to do with spirituality. has everything to do with faith. has everything to do with a worldview. You don't want to be unequally yoked, as we will see what Paul says. You see, here's the deal. Jesus is not a tribal deity just to a particular people group. He is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Therefore, all are welcome to worship. All are welcome to marry if they hold to the Word of God regarding to faith and practice. We even see this in Nehemiah 10, verse 28. Look at that real quick. He says, And all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. What he's saying there is there's, there's people outside the Israel, outside Jews, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Samaritans, that they are welcome, that they separate themselves from their old worldviews, their old gods, and they receive the God of the old covenant. They believed in Him, and they were welcomed to worship and to marry. We see this, a great example of this marriage when we have a Jewish man, Boaz, marry a Moabite woman, Ruth. And so in today's context, again, God is the God of all nations, all people's groups. So an Italian man can marry a Spanish woman. An Ethiopian man can marry an American woman. That's not what we're getting at here. What, they're, they're, what they were disobeying was not, again, ethnicity, but faith and practice spiritually. So important. Paul affirms in Nehemiah in 2 Corinthians 6.14 where he says, Do not be what? Unequally yoked with unbelievers. There it is. Again, not ethnicity. It's spirituality. Verse 15, because what partnership does Christ have with Biel? You see, the biggest reason why this is, this is not called for in Scripture, why we are called to marry other Christians, is because our marriage, though it's about our happiness... There's something greater about marriage than our happiness. And what that is, is that our marriage, Christian marriage, shows the world of Christ's relationship to His church. It shows the world what Christ's relationship is to His church, how Christ treats His church. Our marriage should reflect that in Scripture. And so if you have a a Christian married to a Buddhist, you can see how that doesn't work. In fact, that makes that claim in Scripture that it wouldn't make sense. It paints a totally different picture. In fact, the picture it paints is a disjointed picture. The Christian picture, the reason why a Christian marries a Christian is because it is a declaration of Christ and the church. And so, that is the Christian. And not only that, if you, here's just a real practical thing too. If you marry someone of a different worldview, a different faith than you, that means you will look at society, you will look at the social issues of the day through two different lenses and you won't be on the same page. You will be disunified. You will will not have unity. You have disunity in your own relationship. 
on what is marriage? What's the purpose of marriage? What are our roles? What are our responsibilities? What is it called to do? On how you spend your money. <coughs> on where you go on vacation. On how you raise your children. Do you raise it in the Buddha temple or do you go to church? This is why... This is such a big deal in Nehemiah's day, but also our day, that we are called to marry those in the Christian faith. I was just talking to my son Stephen this past week, and he's going to school out in South Carolina, and he met this new girl. She goes to Clemson. And so I'm like, oh, okay, this is cool, you know. And we have, I have a list of, you know, five or six questions. You can always ask my, my kids what are those questions in general, but one of them will always be, well, is this, does, is she a Christian? Is she a disciple of Christ? And this last time he said, well, I don't know. It's like, well, okay. Now I know how to guide and direct my son in this relationship, whatever this relationship is. It helps him take the next steps on what to do with this relationship. And so if you're single in here, you probably have a lot of people trying to set you up, right? Your parents, your friends, family members. And so just let them know, like, hey, I'm all for you trying to set me up, but just make sure here's a couple requirements. And one of the requirements is, does that person love Jesus? The Bible frowns on missionary dating, if you know what I'm saying, right? A lot of people think like, oh, I'm, <coughs> I'm strong in my faith. I can bring this man, this woman to faith. But that's not how it works. God doesn't need your help in that area. He will bring them to faith. You be obedient by the call when you look for a spouse that's someone in the face, someone with the same worldview, because you will save yourself a ton of headache and suffering. So this is what they were recommitting to. So parents in here, some of you parents in here, you're getting children that are starting to get to that age and starting to notice the opposite sex. It's time to start having to talk on what a biblical marriage looks like. It's start, ha- start having the time to, to guide your children in what God calls them to look for in a spouse. And for those of us that are already married here, today is a day maybe to recommit to one another. Recommit to the covenant of marriage. Uh, there's marriages in here that are in some deep, deep, dark valleys. There's some marriages in here that are on green pastures. There's some marriages in here that are just maybe indifferent right now. Today is the day that you rec- recommit to one another. And men, it begins with you. It begins with you, husbands. We are called to be the leaders of our family. God has given us that role. We are called to to love our wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificially. We are called to cherish her, to nourish her, to, to wash her with the Word spiritually. It begins with us. Make that commitment to your wife this morning. Wives, you're called to submit to your husbands, to, to come underneath his leadership, to be a good companion, to be a good uh, a soulmate, one who respects her husband and loves her husband. You make that commitment today. Recommit to the marriage covenant and what it's designed for. And there's another group in here, another group of people. There are some of you that might be married to a non-believer. So your question is, well, what, what does it look like for me? What, what does God call me to do? Well, He calls you to, to continue to stay in that marriage and to do this, to love them with the gospel. They, they need to experience the love, the grace, and the truth, and the mercy of God through you. Through your words, through your actions. And then you need to let us know. You need to let us know that we can be praying for you. That we can be praying for that spouse. That the Lord would give favor and bring them to saving faith. Amen? So today is a day of recommitment in marriage. 
in marriage. And again, as we, as we point these commitments out, we understand that no one does these things perfectly. There's no perfect husband. There's no perfect wife. There's no perfect marriage in here. But we're still going to preach the Scripture. We're going to still preach the ideals of Scripture. That all of us are called to walk in holiness and our roles and responsibilities. And yet, we are going to fall short. And when we do, there's grace. But again, the desire is always to walk and obey the Word of the Lord. Second, we see the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath rest. Again, all these, these, all these topics, we could do a, a number of sermons on, series of sermons. But because Nehemiah handled it in bullet point form, we're going to handle it in bullet point form as well. Look at verse 31, chapter 10. If all the inheritance of the land bring merchandise or grain to sell on the day of rest, the holy city, we won't buy anything from them on that day of rest or any other holy day. And then during the 77th year, we won't plant the fields or collect any debts. And so we see that the people of God at this point in Nehemiah's day are, are, are disobeying the, the intent of the law. They're not the ones that are working, but they're the ones that are buying. And what we see is throughout Israel's history, the reason why they have been pot, brought into captivity for 70 years was because of the, one of the reasons why was because they violated the Sabbath in all of its forms. Uh, we read about this when we first opened up um, Nehemiah in 2 Chronicles 36, 21. The reason why they were, they were in captivity is because they broke the Sabbath laws. The Sabbath had two main functions in the Old Covenant. One was for rest and one was for trust and faith in God's goodness and provision over your life. And in this culture, in this time, and even in our culture, in our time, uh, this would really separate the people of God from the surrounding nations because the surrounding nations treated every day as if it was the same day. But the Sabbath day back then was set apart. Saturday was set apart as holy. Uh, the people of Israel would not be out in the marketplace, but they would be in the temple worshiping. Today we're just going to focus on rest for us. Because typically when we think about, or we hear people keeping the Sabbath, they're talking about taking Sunday and using it as a day of rest and worship to the Lord. And that's good. And that's good if that's your conviction. But most people that are Sabbatarians don't even keep the Sabbath the way Scripture calls to keep the Sabbath. So they want to yoke an unbiblical standard on you. The Sabbath back in the Old Covenant were in three parts. One was you worked six days as God did in the beginning, and then on the seventh day you rested, the last day of the week. But then also, <coughs> every seventh year, so you'd, you'd work six years regular, on the seventh year of the Sabbath you would not work. You would not work the land that seventh year. You let the land rest. So for a whole year you would take off. And again, that would show your faith and trust in the Lord that He would provide for you. And whatever grew during that year uh, would be for yourself. You would go and glean the field uh, to provide for your family, but then you also let the poor go and glean the field. And you would also, as you look in verse 31, you would also forgive any debts. Debts were a way that you would supplement your income and provide for yourself, right? And on the seventh year, you would forgive all those debts. Again, that points back to trusting in God and His goodness and provision for you. But then every 50th year, you would take, again, the whole year off from working the land. This was called the, the, um, the year of Jubilee. You read about this in Leviticus 25. So there's three aspects of keeping Sabbath. It would be weekly, yearly, and then 
in the 50 years. And here's what's cool. Many Jews today believe that we are in the year of Jubilee right now in 2022. So that's kind of a cool thought. But I think if you go over there, you're not going to see too many people not working, right? They're disobeying. But anyways, the people in Nehemiah's day recommit to keeping the Sabbath because they want to avoid any kind of any more captivities, right? Now, the, the Sabbath was a commandment in the, Old Test, uh, in the Old Covenant, but it's never been renewed in the New Covenant or repeated in the New Covenant. In other words, of the Ten Commandments, they're all repeated in the New Covenant except keeping the Sabbath. That's not a commandment on you and me right now under the, old, uh, under the New Covenant. We're not required to keep the Sabbath. So, so how do we interact with this text? Well, the New Testament says and talks about the Sabbath, but talks about it in, in, a, in a much better way because our rest, our faith and trust is not in a day, but it's in a person, the man Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.16 says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regards to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the Sabbath was a shadow pointing us to the substance of Christ. And that's much better. This is how Jesus said in Matthew 11. Jesus put it this way. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, Sabbath for your souls. Again, our Sabbath is not in a day, but it's in a person. Augustine says this, You have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. Jesus is your rest. Jesus is my rest. And the rest they're they're speaking about here is spiritual rest. And here's the thing about spiritual rest. Spiritual rest is the foundation of all other kinds of rest. Do you get that? Spiritual rest is the foundation of all kinds of other rests. Physical, mental, and emotional. How many of us in here struggle with rest? Raise your hand. Yeah, pretty much everyone, right? There's some stats like just taking our generation to to a century ago, like the average person in our generation can barely sleep six hours a night. Where the average person back then slept over nine and a half. Who would love to sleep over nine and a half hours of rest? Amen, right? But why? What, what, what is the factor? The factor is stress, worrying, anxiety. Why are all those factors? Because we look to ourselves to control our lives. But when we're resting in Jesus, his, He is the great Father. He is the, the great and awesome King. He is the one that spoke and you and I came into existence. He is our good shepherd. It is His job to provide, to lead, to protect and guide us. And when we are in Christ and we understand that truth, we understand it's not up to ourselves to take care of us. It's up to Christ. He tells us to take a look outside and see the birds flying around. You see the grass Green, you see the trees. I take care of them. How much more am I going to take care of you? So our rest is not in a day. Our rest is in a person. And so this morning, 
If you're tired, if you're stressed out, if you have trouble resting, maybe we're maybe you're looking internal to your own abilities, and, and maybe today is the day that you recommit. You renew your covenant with the Lord, and you look to Jesus as your rest. You look to Jesus as your provider. Here's what Hebrews 4.10 says. We, we preached through this when we went through Hebrews. 4.10 says this, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him. Again, Jesus is the only true rest for your soul. Is the only true rest for your soul and my soul. So look to Jesus for rest. Third is money. Third is giving. Look at Nehemiah 10, 32 through 39. It's actually the whole chapter. We're not going to read it. But this whole chapter, or this whole chapter, these, these verses are all about giving and giving their money to the temple, to, to supporting the temple. The temple was central in the Old Covenant. It was central to worship and ministry. Everything revolved around the temple. That's where the presence of God was, was in the temple. <clears throat> That's where everyone brought the uh, sacrifices to the temple. The temple was central. And so there was, there was things that had to be maintained in the temple. Uh, nine times you, you see in verses 32 through 39 that phrase, house of our God, house of our God, house of our God. And really, the main point of 32 through 39 is, is summed up in the last sentence of 39. Look at it. We will not neglect the house of our God. That's the main thought. We will not neglect the house of our God. Uh, we will give our money, our time, and our talents to the support of the work of the ministry through the house of God. Nehemiah identifies five, uh, four ways in which they were, <clears throat> they were to faithfully give. Look at them real quickly. In verses 32 through 33, you had this temple tax, this general tax. It was a third of a shekel that they would pay. And then in verse 34, you had these wood offerings. Uh, these these offerings. Remember, they had to they had to burn sacrifices every single day. So they would they would each individual family and individual person had to bring their wood as a tithe. In verses thirty five through thirty seven, you had this idea of first fruits of bringing your first and bringing your best uh, to the temple. And then we see in verses thirty seven through thirty nine this this tithe, this ten percent that you gave that uh, that went to supporting the priests and the Levites and the poor, etc. And so these were four ways in which they committed to faithfully give. So how does that apply to us? We don't have a central temple in the New Covenant. This, this building where we come to, this is not a temple. This is just a church building where we do the work of the ministry, where we uh, do the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. <clears throat> but we do see in the New Covenant a rhythm on how we are to Use our treasures to support the work of God through the people of God. And it's not through four or five different faithful ways to give. It's through one. It's found in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. This is what it says. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Here it is, number verse 7. Each one must give as he or she has decided in his heart, her heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's how we are to give. We're to give with joy. Literally, we're to give hilariously. Well, how can we give hilariously? 
Again, it goes back to our identity as a Christian because we're a happy, joyful people. Why are we a happy, joyful people? Because we've been saved by the blood of the Lamb and our Lamb's name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? And we want to be about His work. There's nothing greater on the planet than be about the mission of God with the people of God. And so we want to give our times and our resources to that mission. And because we also understand that the money we make, the treasure we have, that's just a good gift of God to us. And each of us in this room, we all have, we're all on the different salary spectrum. We got, we got poor college students in here, you know? And then we got some that are a little bit more wealthy in here. And God calls us all to steward that money according to our joy. According to our joy. We are to give from a happy and a joyful heart. There are many ways in which <clears throat> revival and recommitment is shown in our hearts and actions, but how we steward our money is right at the top. <clears throat> in my early 20s, I came to know the Lord my, my high school year, my senior high school year, and then I went off to, to college. But I learned this lesson early on about giving. I was listening to a sermon by a guy named Walter Martin. I think it was Walter Martin. This was, again, many, many years ago, so I can't remember. On 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and he talked about the, the doctrine of the checkbook. <coughs> again, this is, this is a sermon I heard, I don't know, 20 plus years ago, but this still, the doctrine of the checkbook stood out to me. What is the doctrine of a checkbook? First of all, do you guys know what a checkbook is if you're under 35? Yeah? Okay. The doctrine of the checkbook. He said, this is, you could tell a person's heart and what he worshiped, what he gave his or her life to by looking at the ledger in their checkbook, where their money was going. And that always stood out to me. I was like, ooh, that, that's pretty good. That's a real practical, you know, artsy way of saying where your heart is, where your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? And so that stuck with me. Also in this sermon, I heard it somewhere else. I think it was a quote by Martin Luther. He said this about money. He says, pile it up, it starts to stink. But when you spread it out, it helps all things grow. You can read about the, the parable of, the, of the, the rich man that just stored up his treasures in the big barns and had to keep building big barns, big barns, and big barns. And one day he, he died because we know there's no, <clears throat> no U-Haul behind the hearse, right? Can't take anything with you. Don't store it up. Give it away. So th- those thoughts, as I was, I was a young man, just really brought conviction to me. And again, it was pointed to it, where my heart was, um, was put to the test early when I did sign that baseball contract because I got a nice little signing bonus as a 20-whatever-I-was, 22-year-old man. Now, I wish I played in today's day and age because back then, uh, Alex Rodriguez signed a million-dollar signing bonus. He was the number one pick, Alex Rodriguez. <coughs> Mine was not $7 million, right? Um, it wasn't six figures. It was, it was a low five figures, but it was still good for a young man like me, right? Today, you sign for like, I don't know, $50 million or something. You haven't stepped foot on, on the diamond. Anyhow, you can tell I'm still a little bit bitter about that. <laughs> <coughs> but anyways, I had a choice. What, what am I going to do? But I thank the Lord that I was in a good church that taught me biblical principles on how to steward my money. And from that day on, I gave. And I haven't stopped giving. And that's just like many of you. There was a time where many of you, you understood 
the requirements, so what God called you to do with your money. And you gave, and you continue to give. Because you want to follow His Word, but again, it's out of, it's out of joy, because you know what He has done for you. And this is why I love serving as your pastor here at the Crossing Church. Because I see how many of you use your money. How you give your money. How you do look and give with joy to what the Lord's doing here through this, through this ministry. And over the past 12 years, because of you, thousands upon thousands of individuals, both here in Fort Collins and around this country and around this world, have been blessed. Have been ministered to. Have crossed over from death to life because of your faithfulness. Because of the way that you guys steward your money. And so keep it going. Keep it going if I can encourage you. And I know you will because you know the joy it is to give. Here's a couple quick practical things I like to think through regarding giving. <clears throat> First, it's not a bill. <clears throat> giving's not a bill, it's an act of worship. And this is why we give our first fruits, just like Nehemiah and those guys did in their first in Nehemiah's day, they gave of their first fruits. Uh, we get a check, we give off the top of uh, our check. It's not a bill, it's an act of worship. It's a way of saying, thank you, Lord, for providing for me. I trust you for providing for me, therefore I'm going to give. And not only that, I want to see your kingdom grow. I want to see your kingdom grow, so I'm going to give with a joyful heart. Secondly, as you give with a joyful heart, the majority percentage of your, your gift, your giving, your offering, should go to your local church. Whatever that percentage is, the majority, at least over 50%, should go to your local church. If I was to use, you know, um, economic language, the reason why is because, <clears throat> sorry, my throat is killing me right now, because uh, you personally receive return on your investment. Well, thanks, I got a whole thing, I just got to drink it. <coughs> you, re- you receive return on your investment. Are you giving here, you, you allow myself and others and, and people to minister to you. We get to help you strengthen your marriage. We get to help you raise your kids. We get to help you uh, in the valleys and on the green pastures. And also, we're accountable to you. You get to see where your money goes. Is it really working for the kingdom of God? Our, our books are an open book, and this is what you need to know about our budget. Is 90% of our budget, or a little bit around 90% of our budget, goes to people in ministry. 10% goes to brick and mortar. And so when you give... Your money goes to making an impact on people's lives. Here in Fort Collins and all around the world. And then, as you look to give outside of your church, you have other percentages that you want to give. We would say, hey man, look to the missionaries that we support here at the crossing. Your other brothers and sisters that are, that are sitting next to you right now. I think of giving to Chris Jones, to Miley Clary, to Alpha Center, to Zach and Kara Zegan. These are people that have the same passion, commitment to the gospel, to the word of God, to the mission of God. So give to them because they're taking the gospel to their ministry, to their context of worship. And then to those other great missionaries and mission uh, ministries all around the world that many give to outside of that. Those are just a couple of ways that we encourage you to give. We're going to go through the gospel of Luke. And what you're going to see about Jesus and money, he speaks about money more than he speaks about heaven or hell. 
in the Gospel of Luke, he, he speaks about money a lot, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when we come over it through the, when we go through the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> so, we want to recommit to marriage, to rest, and to giving. The people of Nehemiah were revived with a passion to recommit in these areas. And that's a practical application for you and me this morning. Where, where in these areas do we need to recommit? Do we need to renew our passion and our covenant with? Where's the Lord calling you to recommit to Him? And again, not out of duty, but out of delight. Out of joy for what He has done for you. Let me leave you with this last thought. This is what separates Christianity from all other world religions, other philosophies out there. Christianity is a faith built on new beginnings. Not just one new beginning where we cross over from death to life in our, in our individual, but each and every day is built on a new beginning. Is built on new mercies that renew each and every day because of God. Because we fall short in all these areas. We're going to fall short in our marriages. We're going to fall short in our rests and our Sabbath and, and not looking to Jesus for providing for us and for protecting us. We're going to look at the way we spend our money. We're going to fail in those areas, but Christianity is the, the faith of new beginnings. New mercies. Lamentations 3 is one of my favorite verses. You guys hear me talk about it all the time because of this truth. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, great is your faithfulness. Lord, thank you that we serve a God and a King who loves us. Who knows each of us personally. Who knows, knows us so intimately that you know our deepest struggles, and our deepest joys. Lord, our desire today is for you by the power of Your Spirit, to convict us of the words that we heard from Your book so that we may be faithful to You. Again, not out of duty, but out of delight. We want to serve You. We want to worship You with our lives. We want to be and walk in obedience to You to show our friends and our family and our co-workers who don't know You that, that there's a different way to live, a better way to live, <clears throat> and that is to live for You. And as we do that, your promises pull out true. As Jesus said, that those who know my words and obey them will be blessed. So Lord, I pray, pray for blessing on every individual in here. That we would walk and be empowered by your spirit, informed by your word, and would be encouraged in community to pursue you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And all people, all Jesus, all Christians said, Amen.